Um, You know, I was really inspired to go into this field as soon as I discovered that it even existed. You have the opportunity to dream new things. And as long as you can convince a few other people that those ideas are worth it, uh, you can have a shot at actually trying those things out. There is a spot in your brain where you touch the tip of your index finger. Those neurons light up. They become active. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ask a Scientist, a science journal for kids podcast, where we explore what it's like to be a scientific researcher. I am Tanya Dimitrova, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Miranda Wilson. Hi there. Today, we have two guests, Dr. Jennifer Collinger and Dr. Robert Gaunt, our biomedical engineers. They do research at the University of Pittsburgh. Jen... Rob and their team of colleagues have been working on a machine that sounds just like science fiction, a brain-computer interface that enables people to control a robotic arm just using their brain. Wow, imagine that. A person who is paralyzed due to a spinal injury, for instance, can instruct the robotic arm to pick up an object by just thinking about it. And not only that, the person can feel back the pressure when the robotic arm picks up the object. That is amazing. And it can seriously enhance the quality of life for people with tetraplegia and other disabilities. The research about this robotic arm has been published in the journal Science. And here at Science Journal for Kids, we recently adapted it for school students. Today, we will talk with Jen and Rob about their work, but we will also get to know, at least a little bit, the people behind the professional scientists. Hi, Jen. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Excellent. Your current research is clearly at the cutting edge of science and technology, but we're going to start from the time you were students yourselves. And we're actually going to start with a question from a student. Hello, my name is Tracy and I'm a student in year 12. What subjects did you take in high school? Were they all sort of science engineering based? Sure. Yeah, I did take a lot of math and science classes in high school, um, in particular physics class. Um, Our teacher really showed us how you could apply the principles of physics to the movement of the human body. And that really piqued my interest just because I played a lot of sports in high school. And so I started to think about how you could apply science and engineering um, to more medically focused problems. And that helped motivate my career. What about you, Rob? Yeah, I did all the sciences, you know, all the ones you would imagine, math, chemistry, physics, uh, biology, um, you know, but I did a lot of other things in high school as well. I, you know, I played sports and I also, um, you know, did a lot of music as well, I played the piano and the musical theater and those sorts of things. And, and I think all of those different things all contribute in some way to, uh, you know, to what I was ultimately able to do. That sounds awesome. Um, It sounds like you were both always interested in STEM in at least high school. What about before that? Um, I probably didn't have a word for it before (laughs) high school, Um, you know, but I was always participating in science fairs and sort of anything that was, you know, hands on where I kind of got to dig in deep into a project. Um, Those were the types of things that I would gravitate towards. 
And I always, I liked taking things apart. You know, I was that kid that was pulling toys apart, trying to figure out how they work and, uh, you know, built my own car and or repaired my own car, tore, tore the engine down. So I was always interested in how things work, taking them apart and putting them back together. We're speaking about toy cars, not real life cars, right? I did that to my that my first car as well. I tore it down to <laughs> uh, to a pile of parts in my uh, in my parents' garage and then rebuilt it. What kind of car was it? That was a Chevy S10, a little pickup truck. Were you able to drive it afterwards? I did, and there weren't too many pieces left over. I guess they were all <laughs> unimportant ones, anyways. <laughs> so um, let's talk about your time studying at university, um, Jen. You did both your bachelor's in bioengineering and your PhD at the University of Pittsburgh, where you still are doing research. Ever thought about giving another university a chance? <laughs> you know, I've just really enjoyed my time here. And so uh, I keep going. Um, I think throughout my time, it's sort of evolved, you know, what my focus has been. Um, I actually, you know, never intended to go to the University of Pittsburgh because it was close to where I went to high school. But I took a tour of a research lab here where they were studying, you know, the way that tendons are loaded. And if you could um, design surgeries to be more effective and prevent re-injury. And I just thought that was a really neat application of the math and science that I'd been studying in high school. And so um, I did end up applying to the bioengineering program here at Pitt. Um, and as an undergrad, um, worked in that same research lab that I had gone on a tour of um, when I was in high school. You know, as I was thinking about graduate schools, um, you know, I certainly expanded my search, but there was an opportunity to to work here and shift a little bit more into the field of rehabilitation. And so for my PhD work, I was still doing biomechanics and studying the way that people move, but I was working with people with spinal cord injury who propel their manual wheelchairs. And we were looking at whether the way that they propel their chair with their hands and arms can actually um, potentially lead to injury of their shoulder, which could be devastating for somebody who relies on their upper limbs uh, for so many functions. Um, and so we were able to identify more effective propulsion techniques that could be taught um, to hopefully reduce injury. Um, and so that sort of got me into the field of rehabilitation. And, and then again, another opportunity uh, presented itself to really, you know, pivot again a little bit. So now instead of trying to um, prevent injuries, the goal was really to use neural technology to restore upper limb function. And so my interest has sort of um, evolved throughout that path. And, and the University of Pittsburgh was a great place um, for me to keep doing that. Uh, Rob, you are from Canada, right? That's correct. And you first studied mechanical engineering, and then you did a PhD in biomedical engineering at the University of Alberta. So I was wondering, did you decide to take that route because engineering just mechanical things was just too boring? I wouldn't say that. I, you know, I think much like Jen described for a lot of people and certainly for me, you know, the more you get into something, you get into a field, the more you learn about it, the more opportunities become apparent to you. Things you didn't know existed and, you know, now you become aware of. And so it's really difficult when you're young to make decisions, especially in research about what you ultimately want to do, because a lot of things, you know, you just don't know that they exist at all. You know, and so I did mechanical engineering because I was interested in, you know, how things worked and mechanical things. And I think that was a good choice. Uh, I spent a, some time, a few years actually working as a mechanical engineer, 
But it became clear to me that really my interest was less, say, in the robots themselves and more on how you might actually control those robots. How might you connect a person to a robot to be able to allow them to control it? So that's really where my interest um, started switching to bioengineering. And, you know, the term that we often refer to ourselves now as um, as neural engineers didn't really exist so much, you know, back in those those days. And so you know, a PhD in biomedical engineering was also something that made sense at the time, although I did something that was, you know, a little bit different from my PhD, but it did set me up well for what I'm doing today. We're about to get to the brain-controlled robots, but first I wanted to, to ask you something a little bit different. We are always interested to know how professional scientists like yourselves manage to balance all aspects of your work life, like doing research teaching, writing, with your personal lives, spending time with family, taking care of your health, having fun sometimes. So is it possible? And how do you do it? Sure. It's, you know, it's absolutely possible. I think like many careers, you know, you end up making decisions about how busy you want to be. And certainly this is a busy career. I spend a lot of time working, but I've got a, a great family and we do a lot of things together. And, a, you know, a few weeks ago, we uh, or a couple of months ago now, we took two weeks off and went to go through the uh, national parks out in Utah. And so you just make these decisions that are, you know, that seem right at the time. So, you know, it's, if you let the work consume you, certainly there is enough of it to do that it could take all your time. And so this really becomes sort of decisions that you make for yourself about uh, how to balance and make sure that you're, you know, putting the right amount of time into the things that are important for you in your life. Right. And I guess that's true for any professional field, not just professional scientists. You know, the work will never be finished. That's one thing I came to understand a long time ago. You know, there there will always be more of it to do and it will never be finished. And so sometimes you just need to take a break and, and do something else. You know, one thing I think about an academic career um, that is really nice is that it does come with a lot of flexibility in different aspects. So to some level, you know, we get to choose the the types of problems that we're working on. And so when you're working on things that are you feel are important to you, um, you know, that makes the, the work time go a lot faster. And so even though there is a lot of work to do, um, we have some control over exactly, well, you know, how we're spending that time. And, you know, in terms of balancing with outside of uh, work life, you know, I am married, I have two kids, um, they're seven and 10 years old now. And so I, I think we're, you know, as my kids get older, I think finding that balance has become a little bit easier for sure. And so, you know, it's nice to be able to um, flex my schedule a little bit if I want to go watch their baseball game or football game, you know, we can kind of take advantage of that. And then, you know, like Rob said, the work is never done. So, you know, we find the time to do that. Um, but there is that flexibility, um, which I think is really nice. I wonder if each of you could describe for us what a day in your life is like, a typical day. Obviously, every day is different. And you just said you have a lot of flexibility in building your program. But what is a day of the life of a professional researcher like? Well, I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of meetings. Um, there's a lot of uh, administrative responsibilities. But that, you know, those are always usually focused around um, moving projects forward. And so things are very project focused. So I spend, certainly spend time in project meetings. I also spend a lot of time talking to students, you know, how they're doing in their experiments, what 
uh, what they were up to. Uh, we're working towards conference deadlines, you know, planning those sorts of things out with them. And so, so a lot of it is one-on-one meetings with people uh, or, or larger group meetings with the students and engineers and other staff that we have here in our group. So, you know, that takes on average probably at least half my day every day. And then I do still spend some time in the lab uh, watching experiments and, you know, helping out. And even though I can't uh, usually, you know, run them myself much anymore, the students are a lot better that, at all of that stuff than I am. Uh, I do like to go in and, and see what's happening and, and at least stay a little bit connected to it. Uh, you know, and apart from that, uh, there's always writing, working on grants uh, and other sort of future planning. You know, like Jen said, there is a lot of control over what you do. And so that's actually one of the really fun parts about this job is that you have the opportunity to dream new things. And as long as you can convince a few other people that those ideas are worth it, uh, you can have a shot at actually trying those things Mm -hmm. out. So most days um, I get my kids on the school bus and then head into the office. And yeah, a big chunk of the day is really spent talking to people on the team. So the work that we do really requires you know teamwork and people with all different types of expertise. So clinicians, engineers, we've got students, um, scientists um, who are all working together to make, you know, push the science forward. And so we spend a lot of time trying to talk about what the goals are and troubleshooting and just, you know, trying to help their careers progress as well. Um, and then, of course, I get to observe the experiments, see how things are going um, with each of our study participants who really are also, you know, like part of our team. The work that we do, um, people come work with us for years at a time and they're in the lab three days a week, um, typically. And so there's a lot of experiments that are happening and it's really nice to get to know them as well as part of the team. Um, you know, outside of those things, you know, definitely writing grants and writing papers, trying to continue this work and share what we've learned. I think a, a lot of listeners are coming to realize that scientific research is actually a, a very team oriented effort and very few things are done by individual researchers, right? Everyone works as a team. Like you said, Jen, you spend most of your day talking to people. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. I mean, some days I wish I could carve out, you know, one hour to be by myself and work on some of my, you know, some of the things that I need to do, but it really is a team sport. And that's actually one of the great uh, fun parts about it. One of the really inspiring and, and uh, motivating parts of the job is actually talking to and working with students who are just getting into this, you know, who see their careers out in front of them, uh, you know, teaching them and learning from them as well. So let's move on to some more specifics about your research. This robotic arm and brain-computer communication channel you've created is absolutely amazing. Your paper was published in the journal Science in 2021. Your research has also been published all over the news and has been covered by all the major media channels. It's not surprising considering how advanced your research is. I mean, being able to control a robotic arm just with your brain and being able to feel a response sounds almost like something out of a science fiction novel. But your research wasn't always so complex. The first iteration of your initial brain-computer interface just relied on vision and the person using it could control the robotic arm based only on what they could see. But you found that that system was slow compared to the movements of an able-bodied person. So your next iteration included tactile feedback, 
which really improved the speed of the movements. So can one of you tell us why that tactile feedback is so important for using these prosthetic arms so effectively? Sure. And I think the right place to start to answer this question, at least briefly, is to think about how important sensation, touch, you know, is for us in our own lives as we move. And we don't think about it a lot. You know, we, we think a lot about vision and hearing and taste. Touch, maybe a little bit less, you know, but I'll tell you that there are very occasionally people who lose the sense of touch or who lose that sense of where our limbs are in space, right? So we are, we are filled with sensors. Our skin is filled with thousands of sensors, just like our muscles. And if that gets lost, if you lose that ability to feel things, it's almost like you're paralyzed. Even though you can move your muscles, you can control your muscles normally, strength is normal, it's very difficult to make effective movements. You know, something uh, that many people might be familiar with is if you've ever gone to the dentist and you've had, you know, you've had your, um, your tooth frozen or something like that, you know, you know how difficult it is to, you know, have a drink of water after that, you know, water will be like dribbling down your lips. You, you can't move if you can't feel basically. And so that's kind of the idea behind it. And although vision is an extremely powerful sense and we use it to move all the time, we did have this expectation that without that sense of touch, people's ability to move and control things effectively and rapidly and skillfully like we do uh, would be impoverished. And so that's why we went down the pathway of trying to add at least some limited sense of artificial touch back into the system. It's because we know how important that is for us, uh, for able-bodied people in normal movements and behavior. We have a few more questions from students, uh, specifically about your research. Hi, I'm Adiant, and I'm a seventh grader from California. My first question is, which parts of the brain typically receive and interpret information from when the hand touches something? And how is this information communicated? And so there's a part of our brain uh, called the somatosensory cortex and is right beside the motor cortex. And so these are the two parts of the brain uh, that we target. Uh, in the somatosensory cortex is that part of the brain where there's basically a map of our bodies there that responds when we touch things. And so everybody's got this part. The map there is always the same. Uh, we can find it using imaging. Uh, so we can put people in an MRI machine and ask them to do tasks and kind of find out where that is. And then that's where we go and implant our electrodes. And then with tiny pulses of electricity to that part of the brain, they can experience something like a sense of artificial touch. How do you actually implant the electrodes? Yeah, so the first thing that we need to do is figure out where to place them. So both the motor and somatosensory cortex are quite large relative to the size of the electrodes that we are implanting. Um, so we have the person go in an MRI scanner and measure a functional MRI while they attempt to perform different movements of their hands and fingers. Um, and so when they're doing these attempted movements, even though their spinal cord injury might prevent them from actually moving, we can get fairly detailed maps of you know, where this area in the sensory cortex that is, had previously been connected to their hand. And so we, our, our neurosurgeon on the team um, then kind of plans the location of where these electrodes will be implanted and we can place them based on these functional maps. And what it turns out is that even, you know, 10 years after spinal cord injury, after this person has never felt a sensation in their own hand, we can stimulate that part of the brain that had previously been receiving that input and it generates a sensation that feels like it comes from their own hand. We have another question from Polina. 
Hi, my name is Polina and I'm a volunteer at Science Journal for Kids and Teens. And today I have a few questions for you. How do biomedical engineers work with other healthcare professionals, such as doctors and researchers? Our team is definitely multidisciplinary. So Rob and I are both engineers by training. Um, and so we're doing a lot of the you know, implementation of the system. So how to extract signals from the motor cortex in order to control a robot or how to stimulate through electrodes in order to convey that uh, sensory feedback. But we work closely, obviously, with a neurosurgeon who does the implantation of the electrodes themselves. We've worked with occupational and physical therapists to help design the tasks that we're going to use to evaluate performance. We work closely with rehab physiatrists to manage the care of the study participants and who have spinal cord injury, and again, to just get feedback on, you know, how we, what, you know, what our goals should be in terms of trying to restore function for people with spinal cord injury. And obviously the participants themselves are the best experts um, who can really tell us, you know, what they want from these types of devices. We have one question from Tracy. How do you think this technology will develop in the future? Will it give rise to sci-fi scenarios like becoming a cyborg? And even more generally, could you discuss some of the potential ethical concerns that may arise as this technology continues to advance and become more widely adopted? Well, so maybe I'll say something about, you know, what I think the possibilities might be in the future and let Jen uh, talk about some of the ethical considerations that, uh, you know, are really important for our research. You know, and I think the you know, in the very big picture, it's certainly easy to get um, excited by the sci-fi possibilities of a brain-computer interface. Certainly, uh, you know, I'm attracted to that, and it, it's exciting to think about. I, I think the important thing to to say here is that the extent that we're able to use brain-computer interfaces to do anything useful at all really is based on what we know about how the brain operates. And so all the work that we do here is really... Uh, based on fundamentally the work, you know, ten, you know, dozens and a hundred years of history in neuroscience of people trying to understand what it is that the brain does and how it operates. And we uh, put those things into practice and then, you know, discover new problems, which we solve. And so the extent to which we um, can imagine doing uh, things in the future really depends on what we know about how the brain works. Fundamentally, there's no real reason why we couldn't build machines that could interface with our brain to do almost anything that you or I do or think normally. But there are all sorts of practical challenges, you know, really, really difficult engineering problems that would need to be solved to do it. You know, the brain has got 80 billion neurons in it, you know, and we put a couple of hundred electrodes in. So we are vastly undersampling what is going on in the brain. And, and closing that gap is a really really huge problems. There's a lot of work to do, uh, but it certainly is fun to think about uh, what those possibilities might be in the future. Yeah, you know, and, and that leads us to think about ethical considerations, particularly for future devices, because right now, even though while we're only sampling from, you know, a few hundred neurons, you could imagine if you get more and more information and algorithms become more and more advanced, that you could learn more information about a person from their brain activity. And so, you know, privacy and how to protect uh, this data, make sure that it's not used um, in a way that could be used to discriminate against anyone um, and that they, you know, retain ownership over their own brain data um, is definitely a big topic in the field. And how do we actually make sure that that 
that happens. On the flip side, you know, we are developing technology that we think is going to be helpful for people with motor impairments. And so we want to make sure that it is accessible um, to everyone. So we don't want it to be so expensive or specialized that people can't access it when it really could help them increase their function or quality of life. And so I, I think those are two you know, different sides of the challenge. One is where you want to be, you know, very cautious and make sure we're protecting privacy. And on the other side, if we have technology that can actually benefit people, how do we get that out to market um, so that they can start using it? Right. And and actually, one of the students asked specifically about that. Um, he asked, how much money does a bi-directional brain-computer interface cost? And how can we work to make them more accessible and affordable? I mean, I, I don't know if there is a price tag on it. It's not something that you can buy in the supermarket, obviously, but. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think right now it's difficult to put a price on these devices because they're really only being used as part of academic research studies and early feasibility clinical trials. So there's certainly the cost of the devices themselves, but really it's, you know, teams of people who are still trying to figure out the science that is needed to make the devices work as well as possible. Um, so I think moving forward, you know, it really comes down to kind of scaling this up into a clinical product that can be um, more widely distributed, right? As you have more of these devices, the cost will naturally come down, um, you know, and I think it's just going to have to be a priority of the community, especially early on, because it will be fairly small um, patient populations that are targeted to try to ensure equitable uh, distribution of the technology. We always like to end our interviews with a fun pie in the sky question. So we know a million dollars doesn't go as far as it used to, especially in the field of robotics. But let's say you had a million dollars. What is one burning research question that you would like to try and answer? The answer to that question would be a lot easier for me to uh, to come up with um, if it was a hundred million dollars, not one million dollars. Um, <laughs> okay, let's let's go with that then. Uh, um, you know, yeah, you know, you're right. These things, doing this type of work, is expensive. Uh, it do, it does cost a lot of money, but most of that's actually going towards paying people. Uh, scientists and students to, to actually, uh, you know, figure this out. But all right, let's get back to the to the, the point. All right, and I'll I'll scale it up to a hundred million dollars. The thing I would there's there's a thing I would like, and then there's the thing I would want to discuss, you know, sort of discover. Right, the thing that I really want is for these devices to be able to be made fully implantable and wireless. Right. So we didn't really talk about the details about that at all. But right now, there's some parts of our systems that actually come out through the skin. Um, you know, and while that works very well for now, uh, is clearly not where uh, we would want any of these things to be in the future. So let's make that problem go away. Um, and maybe with $100 million, we could do that. And that would be great. And then what I would want to do um, is there's really this question about, you know, when you or I feel things, we have this you know, very rich representation. Uh, we can feel all kinds of things where we can discriminate incredibly fine textures. We can, you know, our, our sense of touch is really exquisite. But when we electrically stimulate in the brain, at best, it's this very crude sensation. It's really not very much like uh, this rich sense of texture and feeling that we can get. And I'd like to understand you know, one, why that is, why is it that we are somewhat limited in what the sensations that we can create? 
And then, you know, could we design systems? What would we, what would we need to do? How would we need to redesign the system to be able to, you know, to create um, a, you know, more natural sense of touch and then ultimately hopefully show that that allows people to do things that they were, would have been otherwise unable to do. So that, that's kind of the sort of question that, that motivates me that I'd uh, like that I will keep working on and, and certainly would give a, a really solid shot at for a hundred million dollars. <laughs> yeah. I, I think like everyone in this field, you know, would really love to have a fully implanted device that will last forever. That gives us access to even more information from the brain than we have access to now. And so I think with that starting point, you can really go after some of the more challenging scientific questions. And my focus is mostly on the motor control side. So how do we get information out of the brain in order to control something? And so I'd say there's maybe two main areas that I'd really like to, to continue to push forward. One is just trying to make our ability to decode those patterns of activity much more robust and stable. So even though things tend to work well every day, performance can be variable. And this could be due to you know, changes in the participant's internal state, their level of fatigue, any pain that they're experiencing. You know, and we really need to be able to adapt to that and make the device work all the time. A big challenge with assistive technology in general is that if it doesn't work, you know, every time and have easy setup, um, it's just never going to be used. And so I, I think it's really important that neural interfaces meet that goal as well. The other area is that, you know, we've been doing a lot of control of robotic arms because we're interested in studying how to use brain activity to control movement. But ultimately, people with spinal cord injury don't necessarily want to use a robotic arm as an assistive device. They would really like to reanimate their own limbs. And so I think, you know, partnering with other people who are already trying to investigate these solutions of stimulating muscles and nerves and spinal cord, um, using exoskeletons to be able to reanimate the limb. I think, you know, pushing on that to actually deliver on a device that, that people would want to use um, would be another thing that I would invest that money in. Well, we'd like to thank you both for sharing your time and insights with our listeners. We all learned a lot about how the brain works, how robots work, what professional um, researchers' life is. So thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much. Did you know that you can directly read one of Jen's and Rob's scientific papers stripped from its complex scientific jargon and made understandable to readers as young as fourth grade in school? The link is in the show notes. Or you can just Google its title, Can a Robotic Arm Be Controlled by the Brain? Or go directly to sciencejournalforkids.org and search for robot. That's all for today. This podcast was produced with help from our research assistants, Natalia Torres-Bejar, and students Adian Bassar, Polina Simonenko, and Tracy Kwan Nguyen. Sound engineer, Maria Mikhailova, and hosts, Miranda Wilson and me, Tanya Dimitrova. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to this podcast to receive notifications about the next episode of Science Journal for Kids, Ask a Scientist. Till next time. 